going to continue our study through the book of Acts that we're calling The Church, where we're learning from the first church. The book of Acts is the story of the very first church. So that way we can take these lessons, apply them to our lives, so that way we can be the church. Because you know that, right? A church is not a, a building. It is a people. It's not a place you go. It is a family that you do life with. We don't just go to church. No, we are the church. And so we're learning how to be the church together. So grab your Bibles, open up with me to Acts chapter 11 while you're finding your place. I got a question for you. Uh, how many of you like being sick? Anybody like being sick? Isn't it just so fun? A nice little three-day vacation, hugging the toilet. Isn't it great being sick? Anybody? Um, I was sick recently, uh, and my whole family was. Like, my daughters were sick. Ashley, now when Ashley gets sick, God help us, because the whole family falls apart, right? And so when the mom gets sick, nothing gets done. And so, uh, but I got sick. And at first I thought it was like COVID or the flu because there's been so much sickness going around Southeast Texas because the weather can't make up its mind. Is it the summer? Is it the winter? Is it the spring? Nope, never mind. It's just Southeast Texas. Um, and so I, I thought, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I feel like I'm dying. And it turned out it was just the man cold. Uh, <laughs> Anybody ever get under a man cold, right? Ladies, you don't know nothing about having a man cold. Like they are the worst, right? I know you're like, but we gave birth. And I'm like, but have you had the sniffles? Okay, it's bad, it's bad. And so normally I'm like a superhero, like type A personality, wake up, tap the red S on my chest and conquer the day. But the moment I get a cold, I'm like, Ashley, please come give me some chicken noodle soup, right? I'm just, I just die, right? I fall apart, all right? Because I, I hate being sick. But did you know that there's certain things you can do that would actually prevent you from getting sick? It's called preventative care. Like the way that you take care of your, your body, it, it really does have a drastic effect on the rest of your life. Even so much so insurance companies and, and corporations, they're now including this. One guy I know, he came up to me after service and said, actually, I get like a little bonus on my check because I have a gym membership. I was like, wow, that's really amazing. It's preventative care. And it's really a couple of things, diet, exercise, and rest. Like if you eat right, if you take care of your body, your body will take care of you. There's certain foods that you can eat that could prevent sicknesses. Right now, my wife has us taking elderberry because it boosts the immune system. There's certain foods that you, you can take that lower your cholesterol, prevent diabetes, heart disease. By taking care of your, your body, you can prevent certain sicknesses from, from happening. Another one is exercise. Diet, rest, exercise, going to the gym, working out, doing some calisthenics, whatever it is, because your brain releases oxytocin that floods into the body, and not only do you feel better physically, but it also improves your mental health and your well-being as well, because you're taking care of yourself. And then rest. It's so important to get the proper amount of rest, you know, six, seven, eight hours. Some of you college guys, 13 hours, too much. Um, <laughs> But the certain amount of rest is important to, 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 to rejuvenate and refresh your body. And don't ever forget, Jesus took naps too. They're biblical, amen? And it prevents us from getting sick and it helps us to stay healthy. Who wants to be sick? Nobody. Who wants to be healthy? All right, so when it comes to our physical health, we have to take care of our bodies. And one of the favorite metaphors the Bible uses to describe the church is that we are a... We're a body. We're the body of Christ. That there are many members, but yet there is only, there is one body. And so if we want to go to a, a healthy church, then what do we need? We need a healthy body. And what we're going to see today is that there are certain habits that we can do, like diet, rest, and exercise, spiritually, that will help us become a, a healthy church together. And so the sermon title today is called Five Habits of a healthy church. We're going to look at certain characteristics, certain qualities of a church in the book of Acts in a region known as Antioch. We're going to learn from them and apply it to us so that way we can be healthy as a church as well. Here's what it says, starting in verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution, remember the church started in Jerusalem. Jesus says in Acts 1.8 that you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and it's known as the Great Commission. Starts in Jerusalem, but because of the persecution the early church was experiencing, they were being arrested, thrown in prison, beaten. 
And it culminated in the death of a young leader named Stephen at the hands of a religious man named Saul. Because of the persecution, it was no longer safe for them to be home, so they became dispersed. They're exiles or sojourners or refugees all across in this ancient world. They had to leave their homes, and they spread all across this region. And then they landed in the place called Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except for the Jews. Because at this time, Christianity was actually just Judaism. Like They were all Jews up until last week when we saw the inclusion of Cornelius. Cornelius, a Gentile who was filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized along with his household and introduced into the local church. The first Gentile uh, convert into Christianity. And now the church is beginning to include not just Jews, but now also Gentiles. And here's what we see. They uh, come to Antioch, to the Hellenists, those are the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was upon them. And a great number who believed they turned to the Lord. So the church is growing. And the report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, that's the mother church, that they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. The church keeps growing again. So Barnabas, he went to Tarsus looking for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year there, they met with the church and taught a great many people. That's the third time the church has grown. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The reason we're called Christians today is because of the reputation of the church in Antioch 2,000 years ago. It was the first place the word Christian was ever mentioned because they were little Christ, which is what Christian means, little Christs. Everybody saw the way the church operated and lived in its day-to-day life and said, oh, look, there's a whole bunch of little Jesuses running around. And the name stuck, and we're called Christians to this day. Now, in these days, the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. And so the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief, that's financial relief, to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, you'll notice as we dive into the text that it starts with a recap. Cap. Chapters 1 through 18 verses, they are all just retelling what we learned last week at the conversion of Cornelius, the first Gentile with his family, being welcomed into the local church. Didn't Trevor do such an amazing job? Can we give it up for Trevor? Come on. Come on. I love seeing young leaders develop their gift. The kid, I call him Trevor and the Reverend, the kid brought an amazing message last week. And it was over Cornelius being welcomed into the local church. And what we see is the great commission unfolding throughout the book of Acts. Because go back to the beginning. Acts chapter one, I said it already. You will be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. It started in Jerusalem. The persecution came. They spread from Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter nine, we're in the Judean ministry where the church continues to grow rapidly. They say over the first seven years, the local church at that time was about about 20 to 30,000 people. That's how rapidly it grew. And the word kept spreading to where now we are from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Now we're in Antioch, the chapter 11, and this is the beginning of the ends of the earth. We're seeing as the, the Great Commission is unfolding Because people are sharing the good news, sharing the gospel, the church is growing, people are meeting Jesus, and lives are being changed. That's what it's all about, right? That's why we say life changed through Jesus here at this church. The church was growing. That's amazing. And you have to wonder, how did the church grow so fast? How did it grow so rapidly? It started with just Cornelius and his, and his family, and now we're reading about the church in Antioch, and it says three times a great many came to the Lord. They increased in number. Many people were coming, thousands of people. How did that happen? I think the answer is found in the text where it says, and in Antioch, they were first called Christians. It happened because of the way they lived their lives. It wasn't because of their marketing, their outreach, because of their programs. It wasn't because of the cool, slick logo they had, because they didn't have any of that. What did they have? They had each other. 
They had the gospel. They had the Holy Spirit filling them. And they loved people, and they cared for people, and they witnessed to anyone, everyone, everywhere that they went. And it was there that they were first called Christians. There was something about this church that people were just drawn to. It's just, they were gravitating to the way that this church lived their lives. And then naturally, people became curious. They jumped in, they got involved, and then God began to change their life too. And here's the important lesson that I always share with our team, and I hope as your pastor you know my heart, and I say it all the time, is that spiritual growth is more important than numerical growth. Spiritual health is more important than numerical growth. People love to say, living things grow, and that is 100% correct. Like my daughter Esther, she's seven. I've had to buy her three pairs of shoes since school started because she's growing. And you know what? That makes me really sad because I can't pick her up and hold her and walk up the stairs with her anymore. But as a father, I'm so glad because my little girl is growing. I I want my daughter to grow. But not all growth is good growth. Cancer grows. That's not good. Bitterness, division, unforgiveness, weeds grow. Right now it's 2024, which means it's an election season. The division in our nation, is it growing? Yeah, it's growing, and that's not necessarily a good thing. And so just because something grows doesn't mean automatically that something is good. And when it comes to growth, we want to make sure that we are growing in a way that is godly rather than worldly. Because you can go to the gym, you can work out, and you can grow. Or you can stay home, sit on the couch, and you can grow. Whichever way you want, but it doesn't mean that it's always good. So we want to have good, godly growth. And the way that we recognize here at Redemption is that spiritual health is more important than numerical growth. Because when we work on getting healthy, loving God, loving others, when we read our Bibles and pray, when we create a community where the presence of God is experienced and felt, whenever we see people who are in need, and we don't wait for somebody else to meet the need, but we step in and we meet the need for them and for ourselves, when we see these opportunities in front of us and we begin to grow spiritually, then guess what? Numerically, we're gonna grow as a byproduct of that because growth is a byproduct of health. And so we don't wanna focus on how did they grow so fast? No, no, no. We wanna focus on why they grew so fast. And then we wanna take these lessons and apply it to our church so that way we can be a, a healthy church. So what lessons do we learn through the text? I'll give you five habits of a a healthy church. Here's the first habit is that they were a caring church. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except for Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists. These are the, the Greeks They were also preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. It it starts off by talking about the the persecution, that they were scattered from their homes. They lost everything, their livelihoods, their families. Some of them were thrown in prison. Some of them were even killed at the hands of the religious leaders and the persecution that they went through. And so now they have to start their lives all over in a foreign city with people speaking different languages, in a different culture, worshiping different gods, they're in a completely new context. Can you imagine, emotionally for a moment, could you, could you imagine the trauma that they must have been through in those first couple of years of following Jesus? The pain that they had to go through, the poverty that they were living in. And in that moment, did they blame God? God, I thought you were good. Why is this happening to me? In that moment, did they, did they blame the church? Did they blame each other? No, what did they do? They, they cared for each other, even in the midst of their suffering and their poverty and in their pain. They cared for each other. And that's why they were able to, to continue to grow. It says that they were speaking the word of the Lord to everyone. They were still like, hey, I, I met Jesus. He changed my life. He could change your life too. 
And then they, they saw somebody suffering and they stepped in. And just, just as Jesus suffered for the, on the cross for my sins, Jesus understands what suffering is. And so I'm going to enter into this suffering with you and I'm going to bear your burden. Therefore, I'm going to fulfill the teachings that Christ had given to us to love God and to love our neighbors. They provided care for each other even when they were suffering and hurting. They still had time to make time and be with those who are also hurting and suffering as well. This reminds me of the, the teachings of Jesus where he says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? And so often, here, here's what happens, and I love you. In our church, there's people hurting and suffering all across the church, and I know people in our church who have cancer, who have undiagnosed illnesses, people whose father recently passed away. I know people in our church who have three people in our church last year, they lost children. I know people whose prodigal sons have, you know, children deconstructed and left the faith and you're, you're hurting. I get it. I see it. But what I want to encourage you with is this is that if you are suffering, do not suffer in silence. Because what happens so often is this, it's because the, the suffering that you're walking through, you, 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 you stand in a corner and you wait for somebody else to come and to care for you. And then when nobody notices, then all of a sudden that suffering, it grows, that bitterness grows inside of you, and then you become resentful towards other people. But Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so if you want somebody to care for you, be a person who cares for others. If you want somebody to, to, to meet your need, be a person who's willing to, to meet the need of, of another. That's why it says that we are to bear one another's burdens. You know, like phones work both ways. And so instead of always waiting for somebody to text you to check in on you, how about you be honest and reach out to somebody else and say, I'm hurting today. I'm sick today. Could you, could you pray with me? Can, I, can you take me out? Can I go out for coffee with you? I need a friend today. And then as a church, we create such a culture to where when we get that text, we respond with the love of Jesus to them. You know, I, I hate it that there's people every single week who walk into the doors of this church and they are in pain but because we have been conditioned to pretend, people walk away without getting the healing that they need. See, we, our church is growing so rapidly, like I, I can't keep up with all the stories and needs that are happening, right? But we've created a system of care, and it's right here in the back of your card. It's one of these prayer cards. We actually have a care team here at Redemption. And if you fill out this card... You can come forward for prayer, but you can drop it in the black box as well on your way out and then write what you're walking through. And we have a team every week who shows up. Not only do our staff pray with these cards, but every week our team personally calls every person on this card. We had 45 cards turned in last week. And every single person got a text or a phone call. How are you doing? Can I pray with you? How can we help? Because we want to be a church that, that cares for others. And here, here's what I've learned. When you care for others, God takes care of you. When you care for others, God in return, he, he cares for you. Look, look what the Bible says. He says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Whoever brings blessings will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. As you bless others, God blesses you. As you, as you help others, God in return, he, as you care for others, Proverbs eleven twenty five. look what Ephesians says, knowing that whatever good anyone else does, this he will receive back from the Lord. As you care for somebody who's in need, God's going to take care of your needs as well. Two needs are met whenever you show love to somebody. You are meeting their need, and God is also meeting your need. As you pour out, God will fill you back up. As you love others, God in return is going to give you the strength and the dignity and the power to be able to keep moving forward with whatever you're going through in your life. When we care for others and as a church, when we create a church culture where we see people and we love them the way that God loves them and we care and we bear one another's burdens, then we create a culture of care 
And therefore, it leads to a, a culture of health within our church. It's the first habit of, of a healthy church. It's caring for people. It's just meeting people where they're at, listening to their story, and walking with them with whatever they're going through. And so if you're hurting today, let us know. We would love to be able to, to care for you. Fill out the prayer card, drop it in the box in the back, and you'll get a phone call this week because we want to care for you. The second thing is, is it's a diverse church. Look at the different nations that are listed. First, you see the Jews, and then you see the Hellenists and the Greeks. You see a bunch of different nations that are listed. You see Phoenicia. You see uh, Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean. And then you see Cyrene. In Acts chapter 13, we're going to meet a man who his name is Simon of Cyrene, and they called him Niger because all commentators agree that he was actually black. He's from the north coast of Africa. And so you have this big range of people, men and women, young and old, from diverse backgrounds, upbringings. You have people of different religions who are entering in and learning how to walk in the ways of Jesus together. It's a, it's a very diverse church. And in this diversity, we see that God brings about a great unity as everybody is coming together for one common purpose, which is the message of Jesus and the furthering of the gospel. It's life change. That is what united the church. And diversity is a blessing that comes along with, with health in a local church. Right now in our culture, there's a lot of talk around the subject of, of diversity. And most of it's framed around the conversation of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's becoming very political. Just recently, the Supreme Court actually um, determined that affirmative action is considered unconstitutional. And then we also see that many governors right now are writing laws to try to counteract a lot of the DEI type things that have been pushed through education systems and corporation systems and even within the own, own government. And it's causing a lot of greater division. And on the surface, those words, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, you're like, yeah, those are all great words. But there's always the statement, and then there's the movement. And the statement is amazing. But the movement that's happening underneath it is antithetical to the teachings of the church and the gospel. Because it's actually rooted in uh, Marxism, which then begins to separate people by the haves and have-nots, the oppressed and the oppressors and the victims. And in their attempts to try to elevate others, they have to they have to exclude others from the process. And this is not the way that the, the Bible teaches us that we are to, to treat others. And everywhere Marxism has been tried and applied, we know the outcome. It's led to the death of millions of people, 100 million people in the last 100 years. Everywhere Marxism has been tried, it has failed and led to a tyrannical regime that has overtaken over the nation, government, and it's led to massive deaths everywhere it's been tried. And now they've repackaged it, rebranded it, and now they're selling it in our modern society. And because some of you are thinking, Byron, you're getting political. Can I just say these are not political issues? These are gospel issues that have political implications for the way. And because, because so many of us, we see the injustice. We see racism. We see sexism. We see classism. We see what's happening in, in the wars around the world and what's happening down at the border. And because as Americans, and especially as Christians, we are so compassionate, which is a good thing, but do not allow your compassion to lead to compromise, and we are not supposed to think emotionally, we're supposed to think spiritually and not politically, but rather we think biblically. And biblically, here's what the Bible says, show no partiality to their brothers and sisters. There is no favoritism in the church, because God doesn't play favorites with his kids. There is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Greek nor Jew. Why? For we are all one in Jesus Christ. And it's not our differences that divide us, but it, rather it's our differences that unite us. And so we focus on what we have in common rather than the things the world tries to bring to separate us. Because the world would love to break us up into classes. The rich versus the poor, the young versus the old, black and white, Latino, Asian, as if these things divide us. No, these things, they 
they unite us because we have a greater cause, a greater purpose. We have one goal, and that is to glorify Jesus, just like Revelation 7, 4 says. We're at the throne of the Lamb. Every tribe and tongue and nation is bowing down, worshiping Jesus as our risen Lord, Savior, Christ, and our King. And our diversity is what makes the local church so beautiful. It's what makes the church amazing. And so we are to celebrate the differences and lay aside our prejudices and lay aside our preferences and lay aside the things that divide us and come around the one thing that unites us, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, because we will not call uncommon what God has called clean. And so the church, as a church, we are... Diversity is, is a beautiful thing. I, I love it. And here's what we do. As, as, we, as we seek unity, diversity is a gift. But if we seek diversity at the exclusion of others, then diversity leads to division. But when we pursue unity, when we focus on what unites us and what God has done for us and where God is leading us and his presence that is amongst us, when we focus on celebrating the stories and learning each other's names and treating each other like brothers and sisters and the family of God with one father above us, we begin to pursue unity and we get diversity as a benefit. And as a church, we've been pursuing after unity, and I believe we're growing in this direction. I love to see what God, God is doing. So, so how, how do we do at, at redemption? I'll, I'll just share with you some statistics, and I pray by God's grace we keep growing in this, in this direction. Seven out of 11 of our staff members are women. Our oldest staff member is 75. Our youngest on payroll is 18. My wife is Asian. I'm personally discipling a young man from Africa, training him to be our next board member. We have people of color at the highest levels of leader in our boards as well. And you're going to see people at Redemption who look like you, and that's amazing. And you're going to see people at Redemption who don't look like you. And you know what? That's amazing too. I love what God is doing. I mean, we have like goth kids sitting next to people in cowboy hats. I mean, we have, like, we have like drug addicts you know, coming right off the street, sitting next to police officers. I mean, I, I love it. I mean, we, we have you know, black and, and white, Latino, Asian, Democrats, Republicans. Even, we even have libertarians in our church. We pray for them, but you know what? We love them anyway. Like, I'm in a group text with somebody who has an Android phone, and I don't get upset. A little bit, a little bit, a little bit. It is annoying. Come on, get with it. But I love seeing what God is, what is doing, and, and how do we get that? Is it, by, is, it by, is it by the world's ways? No, it's, it's, by, it's by God's ways. Pursuing this, by pursuing unity and, and diversity is just, a, it's just the blessing of a united church. The third thing is this, is that a healthy church is a, a serving church. So the report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem that they sent Barnabas from Antioch. Here we meet Barnabas again. Barnabas is mentioned number three, third most, in all of the book of Acts. So Peter, Paul, Barnabas. Not a lot of love for Barnabas today. Everybody knows Peter, right? Everybody knows Paul, right? Nobody's naming their kids Barnabas, though. <laughs> Don't get a lot of love, right? But when the church had to send somebody to this growing diverse church, who do they send? Barnabas. Now, if you remember back, as we've been studying the book of Acts, Barnabas is not an apostle. He's not a bishop. He's not a prophet. He's not even a pastor. He doesn't even have a book of the Bible named after him. He's just an ordinary, everyday guy who really loved people. And he goes on to be mentioned third most in the entire book of Acts. Just an ordinary guy who God used to do extraordinary things. And when he showed up, he didn't preach a sermon. He didn't have an altar call. You know what he did? And he just got involved and he just started serving. What can I do to help? Put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. What, what can I do? How can I help? How can I help grow how can I help love and serve? And how can, I, how can I bless others? That's all you see him doing through the book of Acts. He's always, he's always the man behind the scenes. But he's the one who makes it happen. 
And some of you, you discredit yourself because you think, well, well, I'm not going to make a big difference in the church. I'm not going to make a big impact. And, you know, I don't really have a lot of giftings. But you know what? Even though you're not a pastor or an apostle or a bishop and you're never going to write a book of the Bible, that doesn't mean that God doesn't have a purpose and a plan and a will and a way for your life to be a part of something that could change the world. Maybe you'll never be a pastor or an apostle, but you know what? We could all be a Barnabas. When we learn, when we learn to serve. Here's the way I say it here at Redemption. It's from the parking lot to the pulpit, there is a place for you. And if you can't find a place, let us know, and we will find a place. We'll create a place for you. Because every person has a gift inside of them. We have teams who serve on Sundays, some on Saturdays, some meet through the week. And then sometimes there's special needs that people have come up, and we just meet that need. And sometimes people serve in that capacity as well. Wherever you're at, whatever you're going through, whatever your work schedule looks like, guess what? There is a place for you from the parking lot to the pulpit. Because we believe that every person was made on purpose and for a purpose. And when we serve, we, we discover what that purpose is. It's amazing and beautiful to see what God does when the church, it serves. Now, I've been using the metaphor of a body for the whole service, right? So let's just say for a a moment, if you woke up tomorrow and half of your body didn't work, what would you think? Something's wrong, right? Something's wrong. Well, in the church in America, and redemption is doing better than most, But the church in America, about 20% of Christians actually serve in their local church. At Redemption, we're 50%, so praise God for that. But I have to ask, what would you do if tomorrow you woke up and half your body wasn't wasn't functioning? Call me. me. (laughs) I would pick up the phone, call 911, and then I would lay hands on you. And hopefully you'd be healed before the paramedics get there. Um, But... It wouldn't be healthy, right? So what does it say for a church when 50% of its body isn't actually playing its part? Well, I'll tell you, for the part that is playing their part, it hurts over time. It causes burnout, frustration, resentment, exhaustion, you see the same people serving every single week, you think, so, that's not a good thing. So what would it look like if everybody played a part? If, if everybody who called Redemption Home found some place from the parking lot to the pulpit to plug in and to participate? That would be a healthy church. And maybe one of the reasons why churches in America, as we know, are, are not not healthy, is because many people come with a consumer mindset rather than a contributor mindset. What can the church do for me rather than what can I do and how can I bless somebody else? This morning, I'll tell you a story. There's a man in our church. He's been coming for about four years. And one day he came up to me in the lobby when I first met him. He introduced himself. He started crying. He said, he said this church is saved my life. I was like, that's why we exist. Life changed through Jesus. He said, no, 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 no. The day I came, I had planned to commit suicide. But I, was, I grew up in church, and so I thought, I'll give God one last shot. And I came to church, and somebody shook my hand. And they looked me in the eyes and said, I'm glad that you're here. And that's the moment I decided that life was worth living. And I gave my life to Jesus. And I'll tell you what, it wasn't because of my sermon. It wasn't because of the the worship team on the stage. You know what it was? It was a handshake in the lobby where somebody saw the value in his life and said, I'm glad you're here. That gave him the strength to carry on. That's what God does when you serve. You're making a difference in people's lives from the parking lot to the pulpit. It takes all of us if we want to be healthy. Which leads to number four. 
It's a patient church. Look what the text says. When he, when he showed up in Antioch, Barnabas rolls in. It says that he saw the grace of God and he was glad. He looked up and he goes, wow, look at the grace of God on these people. Isn't that amazing? God has given them so much grace. Wouldn't you love to go to a church where the grace of God was evident and all around you and you're like, he has given them so much grace, amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Until you realized the reason why grace was so amazing is because it saved a wretch like you. Why does God give grace? Because you're amazing. No, 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 no. God gives grace because you're not. Why does God give grace? Because you need it. Not because you deserve it or that you've earned it. God gives grace because we're all broken. And he's putting us back together. God doesn't give you grace because you're perfect. He gives you grace because you're imperfect. Do you know why there was so much grace in the church in Antioch? Because they needed it. I mean, just think back to the diversity element. Look at all the different nations and groups and peoples and backgrounds and upbringings and ages. Oh, put all those people together in a room. Give it some time. There's, there's going to be a mess. The church isn't, isn't going to be, be perfect. And so many people are like, I want to find the perfect church. Where's the perfect church? I want the, the perfect church. I tried this church and this church and this church. I just can't find the, the perfect church where the sermons are, are long but not too long but not too short, and the worship plays my favorite songs, and the check-in's good, and they got to pour over coffee for the, they, I just want to find the, the right church for me. And the moment you find the perfect church, don't join it. You know why? Because you're not perfect, and you're going to ruin it. There's no such thing as a perfect church, because there's no such thing as perfect people. Every church you go to is going to be flawed. So instead of looking for a church that is perfect, how about we learn how to be patient with each other? Yeah, that we walk with each other through the ups and downs, the highs and lows. Like, like we, 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 we are patient with each other because God knows that he's given us so much grace. We should show that same grace to others who are in their journey as well. We want to be patient with people as they are walking with with Jesus. He gives grace because, because we are not perfect. And so he looks and he says, I'm going to focus on the good rather than focus on the bad. Listen, it doesn't take a prophet to point out everything that's wrong in the church. Like you could just walk in and be like, I don't like that, 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 this needs to be fixed. And I don't like that. I disagree with that. Okay. It doesn't take a prophet to point out the things that are wrong in the church, but it does take a person who is patient and who is humble and who is prayerful and who can see the good and bring it out and call it into the future existence of that church. That's what God is looking for, that we would be patient with one another that God would show us grace. And here's the way that I say it, is that I love you guys. I give my whole life to you. Me and Ashley, we moved here. We dedicated our life to, to serving you. But here's the reality is, is that sometimes the church is messy and sometimes y'all are messy too. I mean, I know the stories. I know a lot of the things that people are coming in from and walking out of. I know that, you know, some of you this week, the word divorce was mentioned in a conversation with your spouse. I know that you're battling secret addictions, that, that you're not telling your small group leader, whether it's alcohol, drug addiction, pornography addiction, and then all of a sudden you finally get the strength to be able to say, I need help. I know, the, I know the mess that many of us are in when it comes to our identity, the way we see ourselves, the depression, the anxiety that we're going through. I know the relational issues that you're walking through. I get it. And you know what? I understand that the mess is what gives the church meaning. Because I don't want to go to a perfect church. I, I want to go to a church with a little bit of grime on it. I want to go to a church that, that, has, that, that has real stories of real people who are meeting a real God and their lives are being really impacted. 
I, wanna, I don't want to go to a church where I have to fake and pretend to be something that I'm not and wear a mask and pretend that I'm fine when inside I'm hurting. I want to go to a church that says it's okay to not be okay. I want to go to a church where I can be real. I can be honest. I want to go to a church that, that it's okay to be imperfect because by God's grace, we're making progress and we're walking with him. And I may not be who I am yet, but I ain't that person in the behind me. It's the mess that gives the church meaning. If you went to a perfect church, there wouldn't be 400 locks on that baptism wall. If you went to a perfect church, the altars would be empty every single week. I don't want to go to a church with empty altars. I don't want to go to a church where they haven't baptized somebody since Reagan was president. I don't want to go to a church where the small groups are empty and everybody, everybody knows big fancy college works, but they don't know how to love each other. I don't want to go to a perfect church. I want to go to a church with people who are imperfect like me and are learning to follow Jesus, even in the mess and in the brokenness of everyday life. That's the church that we want to be, because that's a healthy church, a church that's patient with one another. And leads to number five, it's a, it's a generous church. Look what happens. There's a prophetic word that goes out a prophet named Agabus stood up, foretold by the Spirit, there would be a famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So after a year together, they, they've begun to finally reach this level of maturity. It didn't happen overnight. It happened over time. It was a young church. It was a growing church, but it was a healthy church. And as the story concludes, what was the last test of their maturity? What was the last habit of their health? It wasn't their preaching. It wasn't their prayer meetings. It was the mark of generosity on that church. Oftentimes, that's the last area that God wants to grow in us. Because it's one of the hardest areas to actually trust God. Do you believe God is provider? Or, or do we believe that I provide for myself? It, it takes significant trust because our finances are so personal. But the mark of maturity and the habit of health, at the end of the story, a year later, they've grown to the place to where they were willing to give. And this brings a question in many people's minds. How much am I supposed to give? Well, I'm going to answer that question in greater detail in February because we're going to be kicking off a new series called Multiply, where we're going to be casting vision about our generosity initiative that we're in, where we've been raising funds for our church, our community, and our world, and the new building that we're going to be moving into by the end of this year. But it's so much more bigger than a building. It's about building the kingdom of God. Last year, we gave away over $80,000 to missions projects locally and globally all around the world here at Redemption because of, because of the generosity of our church. We've been able to help people who are in need, benevolence, paying off, you know, bills and, and, and helping buy groceries for single moms. Like, that's the things that, that we do because we recognize that even though here we see that there is a, a, there is a, a natural disaster, but right now there is a spiritual, there's a spiritual crisis happening in our culture. And generosity is one of the ways that we're able to meet the need. And so some people ask, they say, well, how am I supposed to give? I want you to look at the word right there. Here's, here's what it says. The disciples determined everyone according to his own ability. The way I would encourage you here at Redemption is this, is that giving is not based upon the size of the gift, but the sacrifice of the giver. If you notice, it, it's their heart. It's the heart that they were so overwhelmed with, with, with love and care and compassion. They were so overwhelmed with the move of God that they were living and experiencing that it overwhelmed inside of them and they determined that everyone would give according to their ability. There was a determination. It wasn't spontaneous giving. It was sacrificial giving. They felt it. When you give, do you, do you feel it? Not in the wallet, but in the heart because where the treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Do you overflow in worship and gratitude and joy when 
whatever you, you give because you recognize that, that when you give, God is blessing it in other people's lives as well. And it's making a difference to further the cause of the gospel. Like I give to redemption because I love seeing what God is doing in your lives. Like, I don't have to give, I get to give. It's a joy, it's a privilege to be able to give. I give because my daughters come home every single Sunday and we always ask, what was your takeaway? And they tell me the Bible lesson and they sing worship songs. That's my kids. I give because of redemption youth and what God is doing in the next generation. Did you know that I got kicked out of youth group? And now we have a church with a youth group. I have to wonder what my life would have looked like, how many pain and heartaches, how many drugs I wouldn't have done and parties I would have been to. I wonder what my life would have looked like if I had a man who would mentor me when I was 16 years old and answer my questions and walk with me through doubt and help me through that process. If I had somebody in my life, what would my life look like? But now we're giving that to these kids. That's why I give. I give because we have hundreds of people getting baptized every year. I, I give because I hear stories about the man with the handshake who decided that life was worth living. That's the reason that I give because I know that whenever I give, God is able to bless it and multiply it and meet the needs of people around. You say, well, well how much am I supposed to give? Don't worry about the amount right now. Worry about the heart. It's about the attitude. It's not the what you give, but the why you give it in the first place. It's the sacrifice of the giver, not the size. And this is, I, I think, such a beautiful thing because, because in our church, it's a diverse church. And so some of you, giving according to your needs looks like $100. Because for you, that's sacrificial because it's a choice between buying groceries or tithing. For others of you, $10,000 isn't sacrificial because you make that in one business deal. Who, who gave? What does the text say? According to their ability. For some people, $10, so generous. Like the widow's mite, two pennies, she gave it all. But statistically, the more money you make, the less generous you are. And we have a church here in Antioch with the, the Hellenists who have always been there, third largest city in Rome, very wealthy, and then persecuted Jews who are refugees. Is it fair to put all the expectation of generosity upon the rich? No. Is it fair for the rich to put all the expectation on providing for the needs of the church onto the poor? No. So what's God's answer? Everybody. According to our abilities.
have something that I can learn and maybe I have something that I can contribute. I, I want to go to a church and I want to go to a church that, that serves from the parking lot to the pulpit. I never have to feel invisible. Always be, be welcomed. I want to go to a, a healthy church. Anybody want to go to a healthy church? is all 